A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello once again, my friend, and welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am your host, Clint Davis, your humble narrator, if you will, coming at you on tape and direct from my closet just outside of Columbus, Ohio. In just a little bit, we'll be taking it up north to Cleveland to hear from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who talks music here on the show. I handle the movies and television. He handles the music. It's a good arrangement. And uh, we bring it to you every single month on the Stream Police, free of charge to you. Uh, and we are glad to be able to do that thanks to Acast. So that's as close to an advertisement as you're going to hear out of my mouth during this show. Although maybe we should start uh, trying to hit up HBO Max for paychecks because uh, the, the amount of time I spend pimping them every single month on this show just seems endless, right? And this month, I will be taking a look at their latest hit show, Mayor of Easttown. I've got my full review of that brief series uh, coming up in just a little bit on the episode. Man, does your am I alone in this or does your cue ever get overwhelming to you I mean I feel like I watch movies all the time I am watching TV all the time I mean you know if you listen to this show going back through the years I've watched tons of stuff just in the time we've been talking on this show and told you about tons of things I've watched and I don't even tell you about everything I watch I only usually tell you about the good ones I try to leave the the mediocre the shitty ones I try to just you know just not even bring them up because I don't if I have good things to tell you about then I want to fill the show with that so I wonder if sometimes you feel like all I do is like say that I like things but there are plenty of things I watch that I'm not so hot on I just don't bring them up on the show so that's why you don't hear about them I don't love everything I watch um but anyway I've got this queue of things to watch and like when the pandemic hit last year we thought we were all going to have all this time to kind of hang out and watch movies and stuff. And I actually watched less movies last year than I did in like any other year. And I don't know why that was. I, I told you before, I think I think it was because I was playing more video games and I was just, I don't know, we were like going to bed earlier because it was just all so depressing. It was hard to enjoy things as much. It was hard to, to have fun even watching movies. But I was kind of glad that it felt like Hollywood almost shut down a little bit. So it was like, okay, maybe we'll have like a year to really catch up on movies and there won't be all this new great stuff coming out that I'll have to add to my queue. I think we could really probably use about five good years where like no one makes any more movies or TV shows so we can just all watch the things we've wanted to watch and then they can resume production from there. Of course, that would suck. But uh, that, that's kind of what I wish for because I just want to be able to watch all the old shit that I want to watch uh, and not have to count all this new stuff in it 
as well, which is is just constantly being being piled on. So I don't know. Are you overwhelmed by your queue? I know I am. If you ever want to reach out to me, I am at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, Clint Davis, at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, M-R Clint Davis. Andy is over there at Andy Sedlak. His last name is spelled S-E-D-L-A-K. And you can find me on YouTube at Overdue Review. You know what? If you were a longtime listener to this show, you know that I used to like to always start the show by lighting up a stogie. I sit in my closet, smoke a cigar. It really sets the mood. It's one of my favorite things. One of the things that relaxes me in this world, never lets me down. I've never been let down by a cigar. I've had a few that didn't burn correctly, but I'm going to blame that on the humidor, not the uh, stick itself. But usually they always fulfill me, make me feel good, relax me. And so I like to start the show with one. It really kind of eases me into it. It gets the smell going. It, it, it feels good. But I've stopped doing that throughout the pandemic. I, I stopped doing it more than a year ago. So it's been more than a year since I smoked a stogie in my cigar. Or I, I smoked a stogie in my closet, I should say. And I told you when I did that, when I stopped doing it, that I was going to start relighting again once it felt like we had a handle on this thing. And while it is by no means over, Definitely not over. Like 400-some people are still dying every day from this pandemic just in the United States alone. So we're having that many hundreds of Americans die every single day. We're having 9-11 like every week still at this point. It does feel like we've made a lot of progress. It feels like a lot of people have been vaccinated. Of course, a lot haven't, but it feels like we've made a lot of progress. So I, and I hope it doesn't offend you, am going to resume Lighting up the cigar in the closet on the show. I'm bringing it back in this episode. Here we are, June 2021. The cigar prohibition has ended in my closet. Time to bring one back. And to do that, I'm going to smoke my all-time favorite cigar, an A.J. Fernandez Enclave. Okay, maybe that counts as an advertisement as well. I told you told you a little bit ago that that was the closest thing to an advertisement you were going to hear when I was talking about ACAST. But A.J. Fernandez Enclave, my all-time favorite cigar. Let me light one up for you. I just feel like it's that kind of a it's that kind of a celebration we're having. Oh, that's good stuff. Bringing it back. Nothing like smoking in an enclosed area. All right, let's get things rolling. This feels like old times here on the Stream Police Podcast, so let's start the show, as we always do, with a look back at the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. For this entry into the canon, it's our 64th, by the way, entry into the list of the all-time greatest TV show theme songs. We're going to go back to the 1970s again. I know we went to that decade last month, but we're doing it again because it was just a phenomenal era for television show theme songs, in my humble opinion. We've done the Sesame Street theme song in this segment in the past, but this time we're going to put the spotlight on another group of beloved Muppets as we pay tribute to the opening theme to 1976's The Muppet Show, which kicked off with as much freewheeling energy as you'd expect from the Muppets. It's The Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss Juliet Prowl. The 
The Muppet Show debuted in fall 1976 and would run for five seasons in syndication, but on CBS stations. Kind of a weird arrangement there. It was a variety show, which made it fit in perfectly in the 1970s because there were a lot of variety shows in the 60s and 70s. They were kind of dying off by that point. Uh, And then when you get into the 80s, variety shows have really, you know, become obsolete. 90s, hardly any of them exist anymore. So, but back then it was pretty, you know, common kind of a show to run. But this time you had it fronted by Muppets, which made it completely different, right? And just gave it this kind of otherworldly, kind of surreal feeling. And the way they did it was different celebrities would show up to be the guest host every week and would pair up with the Muppets for skits and songs that helped in revealing that these stars didn't take themselves too seriously because here they were signing up to act alongside puppets, essentially. Uh, And I mean, this is in the mid-70s, so this wasn't like the Muppets hadn't been around for all that long. Um, So it wasn't like a beloved institution yet, but I think this show is what helped make the Muppets what they are for such a for so many generations, but especially going back to people who were kids or maybe were teenagers even in the 1970s uh, and saw these characters bring some of these, you know, big name celebrities to life and uh, make them laugh and make them appear more human as well. So showing up alongside beloved Muppet characters like Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy, Gonzo, Fozzie Bear, Animal, of course, so many good ones. You had heavy hitters like Rita Marino, who actually won an Emmy for her work on The Muppet Show, if you can believe that. John Cleese uh, came on and guest hosted the show. Elton John was a famous guest. Ethel Merman, I mean, a god, right, was on there. Steve Martin. Vincent Price was on The Muppet Show. Harvey Corman, one of the funniest people that ever lived, in my opinion. They all showed up to act alongside what are essentially stuffed animals. So it was just, a, a, I think, a great showcase for people who were funny, um, you know, to really prove that they had a sense of humor if maybe their work didn't always show that they had a great sense of humor. Plus, I mean, The Muppet Show, what you were going to get if you went on that show, anything that Jim Henson was involved with, you were going to get sharp writing, uh, and you were going to get strong musical performances, and you were going to get production values that were high, and you were going to get just memorable, zany comedy that works across virtually any era. So it, it's just, a, I, I think, of a really a dream thing for anyone. And that's why so many great people over the years have signed up to work on Muppets projects, because I think it was just such a great place to kind of cultivate creativity and get funny people to let out their inner silliness that they had just been wanting to let out. Uh, I mean, what better place to do it than in a place where you're surrounded by fuzzy Muppets. I mean, come on. How can you not look at a character like Gonzo and, you know, just smile or laugh? I mean, it's just so ridiculous that I think this is why you have people like Michael Caine and Tim Curry and, you know, all these great people who have worked alongside the Muppets show up to do it because it's uh, it's just a unique kind of setting for creativity to take flight. It's time to put on makeup. And the theme song itself was written by Jim Henson alongside 
the composer Sam Pottle, who was known for his work on Muppet programs and on uh, Sesame Street as well. Pottle didn't do any, didn't do the Sesame Street theme song, uh, but he did do music on Sesame Street, and of course he wrote the music for this song, which is one of the greatest parts of it. I mean, the lyrics are fantastic, but the music itself is just so memorable, so bright. Uh, and, and bouncy, and it's just perfect for the opening of a variety show, let alone one that stars the Muppets. So it just lets you know that you're in for something silly and fun and light and lighthearted uh, as well, which is key. Another show, another headache. It's time to get things started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, The Muppets have obviously lived on for decades, and I cannot imagine the Muppets disappearing anytime soon. Uh, and the Muppet Show has lived on as well, as it's now available for an entirely new generation of fans to discover and stream in its entirety on Disney+. Plus. It just kind of recently showed up on Disney+, Plus, so that's pretty cool. One thing that makes the show such a classic, though, is the theme song that opens every episode, and we're dubbing it the greatest TV show theme song of all time, this week. <laughs> the Muppet Show theme song, written, co-written by Jim Henson, the late, great Jim Henson. What an icon. I mean, say what you want. You might think the Muppets are silly. You might think it's beneath you. But uh, I think that was the whole point, uh, was that it was supposed to be silly and it was supposed to feel like, it was beneath you, but it was going to make you smile nonetheless. And everybody's got their favorite Muppet, right? Everybody's got their favorite Muppet. I was, if pressed, I like a lot of them. I love Kermit the Frog, of course, but uh, I think Rizzo the Rat is probably my favorite. And maybe that goes back to my great affinity for the Muppet Christmas Carol, which I've told you many times on this show is my favorite Christmas movie ever. Uh, and Rizzo the Rat plays such a big part in that movie, uh, doing narration, breaking the fourth wall. And, uh, he just is kind of, he steals like every scene he's in. So, which is a lot of them. So Rizzo the rat, probably my favorite Muppet. Who's yours? If you have one, they probably showed up on, uh, on the Muppet show at some point. I, I liked Rolf a lot too. So while we're back in time talking about older television shows, let's go back even further. Okay, we were in the we're in the mid '70s talking about the Muppet Show, which it ended its run, by the way, in 1981. If you can believe that, I always think of that show as like a strictly 1970s kind of thing, uh, but it actually dragged on a little bit into the early 1980s before coming to an end. But let's go back to the late 1950s, early 1960s, right when TV scripted television was kind of finding its legs as far as being a, a medium that really could tell impressive stories and wasn't just a, a method for peddling, you know, cigarettes and other kind of products and, and for having game shows and soap operas and stuff like that and, and family sitcoms. You could really find meaningful television in the 60s and 70s or, or in the 50s and 60s, I should say, and you could find some of the great performances ever in TV. I urge you, this is serious TV nerd stuff. But whatever library is near you, go there and search for like these DVD collections that have come out that are under the banner. I think they're called the Golden Age of Television. And I rented a couple of them from the Cincinnati Library when I was living in Cincinnati. But they've got them, you know, kind of all over the place. Or find something like this. So 
what it what what these are are collections from when TV back in the old days used to be full of these kind of playhouse shows. So they had like the Craft Playhouse and Playhouse sixty and all these kind of playhouse shows, which essentially you would have these veteran actors go on a stage on a set that was basically like a Broadway stage, but it was in a TV studio and they would do like a legitimate play in the span of like two hours live on TV with a few commercial breaks and stuff like that. And you had plays that were written specifically for television and it was some of the greatest TV that's ever been created still uh, to this day. And I think of like Jason Robards and The Iceman Cometh, which I watched recently, a couple years ago for the first time. And it is so long and so engaging, but it aired on television across the two nights. And I mean, I would have just been glued. Like you, I would have canceled plans to watch it because you weren't able to watch reruns back then. So this was like event television, great actors uh, doing brilliant performances of serious work. Uh, and it was coming at you on TV. So you find find those find those DVDs if you can. They're called the Golden Age of Television again, and they would collect some of these play productions, original TV plays with great actors that you know, and put them on DVD. And and some of those were written by a guy that you probably know, who went by the name Rod Serling. And Rod Serling is one of the all-time gods of television writing. Obviously, best known for uh, well, he he wrote the movie. Um, version of the first planet of the apes so that's his big claim to fame in hollywood and in the movies anyway but his claim to fame of course more broadly is for creating the twilight zone one of the most immortal series in television history for good reason and not only did rod serling create the twilight zone he wrote like almost every single episode of the show's original run in the late 1950s into the early 1960s it's just mind-boggling when you watch those old twilight zone episodes and you see Serling's name pop up over and over as the writer. And uh, he had a great stable of writers that he put together, but he was the guy, like, leading the ship, no question about it. And he was writing the majority of the episodes. So the guy was just a tireless workhorse behind a typewriter uh, and just had, you know, kind of an endless outpouring of great ideas and great stories in his head. So uh, Serling, who is, you know, a, a proud Ohio guy as well, uh, which one of the few people that makes me proud to be from Ohio is Rod Serling. Um, he created, you know, one of the great TV shows in history with the Twilight Zone, and the show lives on. So it's been streaming for the last few years for a long time now on Netflix. But the show is leaving Netflix on July 1st. So if you've been, like, you know, dragging through the Twilight Zone or, like, you've always been meaning to watch it, but you're like, it's never going to leave. It's always been here. I kind of thought the same thing. You're now on the clock. So as I'm talking to you, as you're listening to this, you've only got, you know, days or weeks to watch the Twilight Zone on Netflix before it leaves. And where it seems like it's going to end up is Paramount+. Plus. Because it was a CBS show, and all the CBS stuff is now going to Paramount Plus. So it looks like Twilight Zone is only going to be available on Paramount Plus exclusively starting on July 1st. So if you have Paramount Plus, you'll still be able to watch them. But what I want to say to you guys, I want to give you now, it's an overwhelming show, a lot of episodes over the course of a lot of seasons. So I don't expect you to sit down and watch the entire run of The Twilight Zone. And some of the episodes, to be honest with you, are a slog to sit through, they're not all good. 
it's not like all masterpieces, okay? I mean, what show is, especially what um, what anthology series doesn't have its share of clunkers? I mean, every single one of them does. There's, there's no anthology show that's nothing but great episodes. And The Twilight Zone is the same there. They cover kind of the same ground a lot of times, and some of the episodes just fall flat. But I wanted to give you five episodes that I consider must-see that I think will turn you into a Twilight Zone nerd. Even if you thought, like, yeah, this is one of those old black-and-white shows. I've heard It's been done to death. Everyone's talked about the Twilight Zone. It's so war- run into the ground as far as a show everyone says you need to watch. I know, you've heard it all before with the Twilight Zone. But I want to give you five episodes from me to you because you listen to this show, so you must think I've, I know something about TV. You know, I know something about what I'm talking about, something that you may enjoy. So just trust me here. If you've never been a Twilight Zone person, I'm going to give you these five episodes, and I think you should seek them out on Netflix before the show goes away on July 1st. So take them and, uh, and enjoy them. And actually, Andy, who is a bigger Twilight Zone nerd than me even, I will say that because he he loves the Twilight Zone. I know he's seen like every episode multiple times. So he's a big Twilight Zone expert, loves the show. He's going to give you his own favorite episode when I throw it to him in just a minute. So, But I want to give you my five, first off, that I think you just have to spend, uh, you know, 25 minutes or whatever it is of your time watching these episodes. So basically what I'm asking from you is like two and a half hours of your time. Watch these episodes, less than two and a half hours. So come on, less than the time it'll take you to watch Titanic again to check out these five episodes of The Twilight Zone by July 1st. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Let's start out in season one. This is season one, episode eight from 1959. The episode is an all-time classic. If you ask anybody about what are the must-see episodes of the Twilight Zone, one of the first ones that's going to come up is an episode called Time Enough at Last. And again, this is episode eight, of season one time enough at last so what this is is burgess meredith who you probably know from the rocky movies plays a a man and burgess meredith was on a few different twilight zone episodes and always is great in them but this is his crowning you know performance maybe of his career he plays this guy named henry bemis who and this is basically a one-man show this episode is it like meredith is like the only guy in the entire episode which you would have happen from time to time in Twilight Zone. I think this show was such a great uh, showcase for actors. Is one of the uh, uh, one of the kind of underrated things about the Twilight Zone. It's everyone always talks about it as a big showcase for the writers, and of course it was. But for the actors, it was just as much of a showcase because it let them play kind of weird situations, and a lot of times it let them be completely on their own, as Burgess Meredith is in this episode. He plays maybe the ultimate misanthrope. <laughs> And he finds out the ultimate Twilight Zone lesson for himself, which is to be careful what you wish for. He's a guy that all he wants to do when you meet him is read. He just wants to read. He's just like a a tired, worn-out man. He just wants to read at the end of the day. He wants to read when he's at work. He's such a, a bookworm. It's all he wants to do is read. But the people at his job won't let him read. 
the, his wife, when he gets home, won't let him read. Like no one will let him alone long enough to, to let him read the books he wants to read. And I think in this, in this case, you can replace it with anything you like to do. So whether it's, you like to play video games, you like to play a sport, you like to, you know, listen to music on your own. You like to, uh, go running, uh, you know, reading, whatever it is, writing, you're trying to do that at home and you've got things going on and you've got this job that's in your way. They all, these things kind of get in your way and it's been all a fantasy for all of us. Oh, I wish I had all the time in the world to just watch the movies I want to watch or whatever. It's kind of like what I was talking about at the beginning. So Bemis wishes he just had all the time in the world to do it. And of course the twilight zone lets him have that with uh, one of the all time famous twists in the history of the show and just one of the most brutal ending shots uh, in Twilight Zone history. The, the Twilight Zone is known for, for its twist endings, of course. It's one of the most classic things about the series. And Time Enough at Last gives you just a, a, a rough one that's also kind of funny as well when it does hit. So Time Enough at Last from Season 1, Episode 8. Uh, that is uh, that's one of the five episodes I think you got to check out. On Netflix before the Twilight Zone leaves. Uh, number two on my list. How about uh, also from season one? This one's actually a couple episodes earlier. Episode number five from 1959, a classic known as Walking Distance. This one was also written by Rod Serling, as four of the five that I'm going to recommend were. Um, and, and Twilight Zone is known for like eeriness and sci fi subject matter that just can creep you out or make you terrified of the future honestly but walking distance is much more down to earth and much more uh gentle and it goes after the idea of nostalgia which would become one of the the most commonly written you know pieces of subject matter that serling would attack in his episodes on the Twilight Zone. This is the first one, though, to me that explored the idea that the past is kind of the most dangerous place a person can get lost in. It would be a common theme of work throughout the series, and Serling maybe never did it better than with this episode. The episode sees this New York executive, this powerful New York, he's like vice president of this company he works at in New York. High paying job, all that kind of stuff, you know, big life in the city. And he stops back by his old hometown in the country. And realizes somehow that he has been taken back in time to when he was a kid. And he runs into his own preteen self. And he runs into his parents when they were younger. When they were like his age now. And just, it's a it's it's bizarre. He's trying to get people to understand that he is like, hey, you're me. And like, you're my mom. And, and his mom doesn't believe him. And she actually like slaps the shit out of him at one point. And it's just a... It's a great episode. It's truly a perfect episode of The Twilight Zone. It has this worthy lesson against nostalgia, and, and there's no practical explanation given as far as how he got back in time and, and what happens at the end. So that's one another thing that I think is great about this episode because it's not about the explanation. It's not about trying to, like, why did this happen? It just matters what the character learns. Uh, and... Walking Distance is just brilliant, and it's unforgettable. It's one of those episodes you watch, and, and you never forget it. it. There's just parts of it that, that stick out to you all the time, including his limp at the end of the episode, which is uh, one of the great touches in, in the whole thing. So uh, I feel like 
walking distance would be ripped off by the Twilight Zone or by Serling himself numerous times over the run of the show. But this is kind of where it all started for me. This is, to me, the first great episode of the Twilight Zone, and it's one of the ones you got to check out before it leaves Netflix. Walking Distance from Season 1, Episode Number 5. Martin Sloan, age 36, occupation, vice president, ad agency, in charge of media. This is not just a Sunday drive for Martin Sloan. He perhaps doesn't know it at the time, but it's an exodus. Somewhere up the road, he's looking for sanity. And somewhere up the road, he'll find something else. All right, let's jump ahead to season number two, 1960. I'm going to give you uh, episode seven of season two, a little ditty called Nick of Time, which might be my favorite Twilight Zone episode ever, if pressed to name a favorite. Nick of Time might be my all-time favorite. Is it the best one ever? I don't know. I'll leave that to somebody else to say. But it's my favorite one. It's the one that just knocks me on my ass every time I watch it. Everything about it. This one is the only one of my picks that's not written by Rod Serling. This one was written by the legendary Richard Matheson, who wrote a little novel called I Am Legend, which many considered to be the best horror novel ever written. I, I love I Am Legend. I, I was one of those books I picked up, could not put it down, blew me away. If your only um, if, if your only thoughts about I Am Legend come from the movie with Will Smith, then please read the Matheson book because the movie changes the ending in such a drastic way that takes all the teeth out of uh, away from the entire story, um, which is a story just full of teeth. It's so dark. Uh, and Matheson was just a brilliant writer, and, and he proved it with this episode. William Shatner stars in this one alongside Patricia Breslin, and they play this honeymooning couple who their car breaks down in this small town in Ohio. And a lot of Twilight Zones take episodes take place in Ohio, which I like. Again, that was Serling, uh, just you know, kind of picking Ohio as the place where nothing interesting really happens, but the Twilight Zone runs rampant through these towns in Ohio. And so this this little honeymooning couple, they're, they're driving across the country and they break down in this town in Ohio and they find this dangerous way to pass the time while their car is getting fixed. So Shatner's character, he's a young guy, becomes obsessed with this penny fortune-telling machine in a diner. So he keeps feeding pennies into this fortune-telling machine that has this little devil head on it. It's this great-looking prop, one of my favorite props in TV history. Put the penny in it. And a little slip of paper comes out and it gives you a fortune. It gives you like a, a prediction of the future. You ask it a question and it'll give you an answer is how it works. And he becomes obsessed with this thing because he feels like it is giving him correct answers about the future. He feels like it's giving him like an exact roadmap of what is going to happen in his life. And it's kind of scaring him, but also uh, just sucking him in and fascinating him at the same time and you and you're watching this and this guy's becoming like an addict and it's it's kind of a, a take on on gambling addiction or any kind of addiction really and obsession all these things thrown into one just in like a 20 minute episode and the whole thing feels so eerie and frightening and mysterious and in a way that the twilight zone was so great at bringing together and uh, and pulling off so you have this couple sitting here the guy's obsessed with feeding the pennies into the machine getting a, a fortune the, the young wife is sitting there telling him that it's all in his head. Like the, the answers are generalities. It's, it's not telling you anything that you don't already know, but he won't listen to her. And, and it, it, it starts to consume him. 
Uh, and you wonder if they're ever going to leave this town. And the episode teeters kind of on the brink of psychological horror the whole way. I think it is horror, but it's subtle horror. I mean, nobody's getting killed in this thing. Uh, but you have a feeling that, you know, their lives could be ending here because he is so just drawn in by this this machine. And the ending that Matheson wrote and the way they shot it is one of my favorite final shots of any episode of the series. It's just a brilliant episode of television. It's 25 minutes of your life you got to spend watching uh, this little black and white episode. It's it's great. Some of the best work that that uh, uh, some of the best work that William Shatner ever did also, in my opinion. So, Nick of Time, season 2, episode 7. My favorite Twilight Zone episode, definitely one of the five you got to check out before the show leaves Netflix. Everything just feels so desperate in that episode is one of the things I love about it. Twilight Zone was very good at desperate characters, putting them in terrible situations. Serling was so cruel to his characters, man. He was just a, he was a mean master when it came to uh, the way he was treating his characters. He put them in terrible, terrible situations, and you just watch them squirm for a half hour, and that was kind of what you were tuning in for. Uh, speaking of which, let's go to 1961, season three, Episode 3, a little episode called The Shelter. This one you're not going to see on all the lists of greatest episodes of The Twilight Zone. I don't know why, because I think this is just great. I I think this is about as dark and sinister uh, as as the episodes get, honestly. Because what Rod Serling loved to do, maybe more than anything, was tear the veneer off of the setting of like polite suburban society, polite suburban neighbors, white families, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, moving out to the suburbs, uh, gossiping about their neighbors and stuff. He liked to tear the veneer off that and and get to what was really there. And way before David Lynch did that, way before uh, Matthew Weiner did that in Mad Men, Serling was doing that in episodes like The Shelter, uh, which I think is just a fantastic episode of The Twilight Zone. It's one of my favorite examples of him doing that. The shelter was aired right as USA-Cuban tensions were kind of boiling, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was right around the corner, and fallout shelters were just popping up like crazy across the United States, making this brilliant, timely TV for when it aired in 1961. It's set in this very friendly neighborhood, affluent little suburban suburban neighborhood where a man is celebrating his birthday. He's a doctor. He's like the small town doctor. Everyone loves him, respects him. Nice guy. He's celebrating his birthday with his wife, his kid, and his friends from the neighborhood are there uh, as well, ringing in his birthday with him. And while they're having their party, everyone's having a good time. Everyone's very friendly. While they're having the party, an emergency radio broadcast goes off, urging people to take shelter for a potential bombing, saying this is not a drill and all that kind of stuff. The only person in the neighborhood who has built a shelter, who has thought ahead and built a shelter, and much to the ridicule of all of his neighbors, is that friendly doctor. And the shelter only has room for himself, his wife, and their son. But the friends, uh, of course, at the house, they don't have their own shelters. There's not room for them to get in there. So things get ugly in a hurry and that's where you watch the characters squirm in this episode all that politeness all that friendliness i mean friendships are destroyed in the course of this 25 minute episode which is just tough to watch and the ending again you can kind of see this one coming once the ending uh comes up but it's uh, another one that's just a major gut punch Uh, and i think it's an underrated one the shelter from season three it's episode three of season three 
and uh, you can watch it now on Netflix. It's it's just great stuff. It, it's just what happens when survival instincts kick in, and you see how quickly like the politeness just goes away, uh, and people are fighting for their lives. It's almost like Lord of the Flies set in a suburban house, to be honest with you. All right, finally, my fifth episode I'm going to give you of must-see Twilight Zone episodes comes also from Season 3. This is Episode 8 of Season 3, 1961, an all-time classic. It's called It's a Good Life. This is yet another one set in Ohio, and unquestionably one of the most frightening episodes that the Twilight Zone ever did. Maybe the flat-out scariest, weirdest, eeriest episode that the Twilight Zone ever did. It follows the citizens of a small town who are all just terrified, completely terrified of this cute little six-year-old boy who has godlike powers and wields them in a way that only a cruel, immature child could. And the way all the adults cower before this kid and work to keep him in a good mood, walk on eggshells and try to do all the little things and say all the little things that keep him, you know, from, from having a tantrum isn't actually unlike actual parenting now that I realize this, but it's so entertaining to watch. The actors just just really get into this, and the, the material is treated dead seriously. It's not campy at all, and it could easily be that way. Um, but all I can say is watch this one. Uh, it's a good life, again, is what it's called. It, watch it and enjoy it, because it is about as dark and unsettling as they come, just completely creepy. And again, it's one of those great horror endings where... Nothing seems to be getting better and everything just seems to be getting worse. And you're just glad to be out of the situation uh, while you can be out of the situation. So that'd be my fifth one. Tonight's story on the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a map of the United States. And there's a little town there called Peaksville. On a given morning not too long ago, the rest of the world disappeared and Peaksville was left all alone. Its inhabitants were never sure whether the world was destroyed and only Peaksville left untouched or whether the village had somehow been taken away. They were, on the other hand, sure of one thing, the cause. A monster had arrived in the village. Just by using his mind, he took away the automobiles, the electricity, the machines, because they displeased him. And he moved an entire community back into the Dark Ages just by using his mind. Again, uh, the, the five episodes of Twilight Zone... I'm urging you to watch Time Enough at Last, Walking Distance, Nick of Time, The Shelter, and It's a Good Life. Something for everyone there. And those are those are episodes that will show you what the Twilight Zone is all about. And I guarantee you, if you watch those five episodes, you will probably want to start over and just watch all of the Twilight Zone because it's just a show that is is brilliant to just turn on whenever you get a chance. There's a reason this show is immortal and keeps being rebooted every few years because... Everyone just has such fond memories of it, and uh, but the original series is the best and always will be, so it's uh, it's just going to be impossible to top it. But the show, again, is leaving Netflix on July 1st, and it will be on Paramount Plus exclusively after that. All right, I'm going to toss things over to Andy. He's going to give you one more Twilight Zone episode you need to watch again. He's a bigger nerd of the show than I am, so take his uh, recommendation very seriously as well. Uh, he's going to tell you about his favorite uh, one also. All right. Uh, after that, when we come back on the other side, I'm going to tell you my thoughts on HBO Max's Mayor of Easttown. That's coming up in just a bit here on the Stream Police. Take it away, Andy. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. My name is Andy Sedlak, and I talk about music here on the Stream Police Podcast. But first, look, if Clint's going to talk about Twilight Zone, I need to at least mention my favorite episode. God, it is so good. It is so good. It will stick with you, period. This episode is called A Stop at Willoughby. A Stop at at Willoughby. It's about a guy who who has been beaten down from all sides, deadlines, demands, his domestic life. It's all it's all closing in. And the only time he has to himself to really unwind is when he is on the train going home at night. And as he's riding, he begins to nod off. And he dreams that the train stops in a little town like in the 1880s. It's sunny outside. Kids are playing. There's a, a, a band playing in a bandstand. Women are wearing flowy dresses. The guys are wearing hats. And then he wakes up. But he keeps having this dream on the way home. And you wonder, is it a dream or is he actually somehow going back in time? It is called a stop at Willoughby. Here's the character who's ha- who has the dream. His name is Gart Williams. He's played by the actor James Daly. Here is the character talking to his wife after having one of those dreams on the way home. Well, tell me about your dream, Gart. It's an odd dream. Very odd dream. <sighs> Willoughby. It was summer. Very warm. Kids were barefooted. When I'm at a fishing pool, it all looked like a courier and Ives painting. Bandstand, bicycles, wagons. I've never seen such serenity. It was the way people must have lived a hundred years ago. <laughs> Crazy dream. James Daly wasn't a huge star, but his kids did well. A daughter, Tyne Daly, is a well-known actor, and and so is his son, Tim Daly. You might know Tim Daly from uh, the movie Diner or The Sopranos. But back to the episode. So Gart lays it all out there for for his wife, and it's it's not well-received. Some people aren't built for competition, Janie. 
or big pretentious houses they can't afford, or rich communities they don't feel comfortable in, or country clubs they wear around their neck like a badge of status. You know what the trouble with you is, Gert? You were just born too late. Because, you know, you're the kind of a guy that could be satisfied with a summer afternoon or, a, or an ice wagon being drawn by a horse. So it's my mistake, pal. My error. My miserable, tragic error to get married to a man whose big dream in life is to be huckleberry thin. Gart Williams makes a decision to get off the train next time he dreams up Willoughby on his way home. I will not spoil the ending. But it's a great one. Just tremendous. A stop at Willoughby from the first season of The Twilight Zone, now streaming on Netflix, on Hulu, and CBS All Access. I've also got uh, the complete series on DVD if you want to borrow it. Let's shift the music and Olivia Rodrigo. I'm so sick of 17. Where's my fucking teenage dream? If someone tells me one more time, enjoy your youth, I'm gonna cry. And I don't stick up for myself. I'm anxious and nothing can help. And I wish I'd done this before. And I wish people liked me more. All I did was try my here first of all who is olivia rodrigo well she's 18 years old and her first single her debut single song called driver's license went to number one her second single was a top 10 hit her third single another number one song so the first three singles that this artist has released were all top 10 hits two of them being number one songs. This is a good time to remind you that Bruce Springsteen never had a number one hit. Neither did Bob Dylan. This is so rare. To be honest with you, it just doesn't happen. And it's a testament to talent. You know, when I listen to her music, I hear somebody that is self-aware but not self-conscious. It's an important distinction. She is self-aware, but I don't sense that she is self-conscious. When I listen to a lot of pop music, I sense some self-consciousness, but I don't really get that with her. There's a focus and direction in her music that's pretty strong. And other people are responding to it. Many other people, many, many, many other people are responding to it. Her first three singles all hit songs, two of them number one. Even artists that seem to 
come out of nowhere usually have to struggle for a little while first. Take Billie Eilish, for example. She put out Bad Guy in 2019 and became a number one hit. She's 19, just barely older than Olivia Rodrigo. But she's not like Olivia Rodrigo in that her breakthrough song was not her first single. Billie Eilish had put out 18 singles before Bad Guy, plus two EPs. Now, in Rodrigo's case, she was apparently a Disney kid. She was in, a, a, I guess, a show here and there, kind of built up her brand a little bit. You know how that Disney machine works. But while I'm not familiar with what she did for Disney, it has to be pretty far removed from the songs that she just put out. These are vivid, emotionally direct songs. Some are vulgar and bitter. Others are, are sly and bouncy. Virtually, virtually all of them are complex. And Disney isn't known for complexity. In fact, they're known for the opposite. Of course, Rodrigo's first full-length album debuted at number one. It's called Sour. came out in mid-May. Very few artists have gotten big hits right out of the gate. We know the ones who have Guns N' Roses, Boston, Sex Pistols, Nirvana, Britney Spears, Chuck Berry, even though Chuck Berry was, was pushing 30 by the time Maybelline came out. Others are the Jackson 5, Run DMC. All of these people had big debut singles. Led Zeppelin had good times, bad times from, from their first album. It wasn't a huge hit, but, but at least it charted. Elvis' first single was That's All Right. It's a classic song. Taylor Swift's first single was called Tim McGraw. That crossed over into the top 40. That's a big deal for a country act. Speaking of country, Garth Brooks had a big hit out of the gate in 1989. A song called uh, Much Too Young to Feel This Damn Old. As I'm speaking, it may seem like a long list, but, but the vast majority of artists have to struggle before cashing in. We forget that. Some have been successful for so long that it seems like ancient history. We don't remember that they struggled. In fact, we've never even heard the songs they put out before they quote-unquote made it. So we're going to listen to a few of those today. The artists who are singing these songs have not yet made it. you got to remember that. They're not famous. Their hopes are penned to the songs you're about to hear, and it, it did not work out. Now, eventually it did. And then these songs were forgotten. But for a brief moment, there was a lot riding on these songs. Interesting, to say the least. So let's get on with it. Get on with it! Let's start with David Bowie. His first single was not Space Oddity. It was not Space Oddity. The first single under the name David Bowie was called Do Anything You Say. And this is what it sounded like. That came out in 1966, same year as the Beatles, Yellow Submarine, and Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. Yes, Bowie 
goes back that far. Another early single called Liza Jane was credited under his real name, David Jones, but it it didn't do anything either. In fact, David Bowie's first eight singles did not chart. None of them charted. Obviously, things changed when Space Oddity was released in 1969. It hit number 15 in the U.S., and it was a number one song in the U.K. How about Madonna? She's the highest-grossing solo artist ever when it comes to touring. Generally considered the biggest pop star this side of Michael Jackson after the 1960s. But her first single was a dud. It came out in 1982. It was a dance song called Everybody. Everybody. I'm Now, that was a niche hit. In fact, it got to number three on the dance charts. But, but do you know what's number three on the dance charts right now? No, I mean, no, nobody does. Nobody does. It's niche, totally niche. By the way, it's a song called Rasputin by Nathan Evans. You ever heard of it? No, not me either. Madonna's next single was called Burning Up. It also stalled. She was 23 at the time of its release. And to her credit, she kept performing that song, playing it on on most of her big tours, the Rebel Heart Tour of 2015 and 16. That was a big one, grossed like over, I looked it up actually, it's over $170 million. Anyway, she played that song on that tour. From one controversial act to another. Let's talk about Eminem. We generally think of Eminem is being pretty big pretty quick, but even his first single didn't really move the needle with the the general public. Uh, Maybe it had something to do with its title. It's called Just Don't Give a Fuck. It was released in 1998. It samples I Don't Give a Fuck by Tupac. So when you see me on your block with two blocks, screaming fuck the world like Tupac, just don't give a fuck. Talking this shit behind my back, dirty Mac, and telling your boys that I'm on crack. But I'm on a search to crush a milk bone. I'm everlasting. I melt vanilla ice like silicone. I'm ill enough to just... Now, this did get to number five on the rap chart. So so it maybe it's a little unfair to call it a bust because, you know, hip-hop fans were, were probably aware of it. But when you think about Eminem, I mean, look, he's the top-selling artist of the past 20 years. This single gave no indication of what was to come. In the song there, Eminem goes after a bunch of white rappers... It's in the second verse. Uh, Vanilla Ice, of course. Of course. But also Everlast. What's funny is is that Vanilla Ice actually responded in a track track called Exhale in 2021. For fun, let's listen to it. Wanna be rapper? Fake mini me like who? 
For the record, Vanilla Ice's debut single was a hit. He was not a one-hit wonder. Play That Funky Music was released in 1990, same year as Ice Ice Baby. It got to number four. But that was more or less the end of the road for Vanilla Ice. The follow-up single after Ice Ice Baby was the dazzlingly titled I Love You. Missed the top 40. By the time he appeared in 1991's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, he was officially a has-been. Let's do a few more. Here's Elton John's first single. It's called I've Been Loving You. That one came out in 1968. It did not chart. His first hit, Your Song, was still two years away at that point. Here's Journey's first single. It's called To Play Some Music. That song is from 1975, and I had no clue Journey went back that far. Steve Perry hadn't joined the band yet. He, in fact, he wouldn't show up until the group's fourth album. Here is Prince's first single. It's called uh, Soft and Wet. It came out in 1978. Soft and Wet from Prince. It did chart, but just barely. It got to number 92 on the Hot 100. And kind of interesting, it was released on his 20th birthday. MC Hammer actually covered that song in 1990, 12 years after it was originally released. No, I'm not going to play that. We're not going to do that. Finally, let's talk about Janet Jackson, now a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her first single was called Young Love. Came out in 1982, the same year as Madonna's first single. And it actually did a little better than Madge's song. Young Love got to uh, number 64 on the Hot 100. They really loved it in New Zealand. Got to number 16 over there. Here's Young Love from a young Janet Jackson. So, look, it's hard to write a hit song. I mean, that's, it's, it's hard to do. 
it's hard to put yourself in a position where you even have the opportunity to connect with a big audience. Even the greats, most of them, most of them had to struggle to circle back. Olivia Rodrigo is a rare breed indeed, but I'm a fan. I think she's a hell of a writer. All right. You know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify just by searching Stream Police each month. We add five more songs to the playlist, and away we go. First, it's The World by The Count Five. Then it's Jealousy, Jealousy by Olivia Rodrigo. Third up, 100 mil by J. Cole. This is a new one. Never pet a rat, never said a lot. Only what need to be said. Got a little guap when you get a lot. Want no bitch, you on red. Don't push me, nigga, my feet on the ledge. This game is like follow the leader. If you looking closely, then nothing you'll see that I live. The moves that I made, the people I fed, the evil I ducked. They minds is too feeble, they lean on their crutch. I'm bleeding from fighting my demons head up. When I get defeated, believe I get up. I come from a city, more niggas ain't heard of until they popped in my first CD. Now look, I'm on a Mount Rushmore, you niggas can't front no more, bitch. I'm a rain until FEMA show up. When I got a ring and like freedom, I duck. E&J fell on my cup, then bullets fly by that shit sober you up. Then, let's go with uh, classic country, and, and I hope you can't relate to this one. It's She Got the Gold Mine and I Got the Shaft by Jerry Reed. Well, I guess it was back in 63 when eating my cooking got the better of me, so I asked this little girl I was going with to be my wife. Well, she said she would, so I said I do. But I'd have said I wouldn't if I'd have just knew how saying I do was going to screw up all of my life. Well, the first few years weren't all that bad. I'll never forget the good times we had, because I'm reminded every month when I send her the child support. Well, it wasn't too long till the lust all died, and I'll admit I wasn't too surprised. The day I come home found my suitcase sitting out on the porch. Well, I tried to get in. She changed the lock. Then I found this note taped on the mailbox that said, Goodbye, Turkey. My attorney will be in touch. So I decided right then and there, I was going to do what's right. Give her her fair share. But, brother, I didn't know her share was going to be that much. She got the gold mine. I got the share. They split it right down the middle. And then they give her the better half. Well, it all sounds sort of funny. But it hurts too much to laugh. She got the gold mine. I got the share. And finally, 
It is stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again by the great Bob Dylan. Happy 80th birthday, Bob. Well, Shakespeare, he's in the alley With his pointed shoes and his bells Speaking to some French girl Who says she knows me well And I would send a message To find out if she's talked But the post office has been stolen And the mailbox is locked Mama, can this really be the end? To be stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis blues again. Mona tried to tell me. That's it. That's all I've got. I'm going to toss it back to Clint. He's going to talk about Maribee's Town, which got to say I've gotten into. Let's see what uh, let's see what his thoughts are. Clint, take it away, buddy. Man, I'm always glad to hear the next five songs Andy adds to the endless playlist, which you can now find on Spotify. Alongside this show, you can find the Stream Police podcast on Spotify as well. So make sure you subscribe over there. And I think if you subscribe to the show over there, you'll kind of find it popping up in your little personal mixes where they give you like talk and music because they'll mix podcasts in with music that you might like. So if you subscribe to Stream Police at Spotify, it'll pair us up with songs that you like and stuff like that as well. So that's kind of cool. But with those five songs, man, always glad to hear a little Jerry Reed. Right, I mean, as a uh, as a longtime Waterboy fan, you gotta love Jerry Reed. And I know every fucking song by Jerry Reed. But stuck inside of Mobile, my God, dude, that is one of the first Dylan songs that really lit the fire for me as far as be- knowing that I was a Dylan fan. I remember of <laughs> I kind of it's really embarrassing, but I discovered Dylan really. Because, again, I'm going to say, when I grew up, my parents didn't listen to rock music. They listened to 90s country music, pretty pretty much. Country music. My mom listened to, like, Madonna, and she had the Top Gun soundtrack. And she liked 80s stuff. She liked Paul Abdul and Janet Jackson as well. But it was mostly country music. It was definitely Bob Dylan was never heard in my house uh, growing up unless Garth Brooks was covering him. So I had to discover Dylan on my own, and it was really through like VH1's shows that they would do when they would talk about the best albums ever. And I remember them talking about Blonde on Blonde. And I was like, man, I need to check this record out because it was way up there. It was like the best record ever or something like that. It was in the top five on their list. And uh, I remember picking up Blonde on Blonde, I think at Best Buy on CD, and listening to it, and I was enjoying it. But then Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again comes on and that track just knocked me on my ass. I played it over and over driving around in my car in high school. Love that song. Still remains one of my all-time favorites, but it was probably the song that lit the fire for me as far as Dylan goes. Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat uh, as well was 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 probably the other one. It was Stuck Inside a Mobile and, and Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. Those two songs really just did it for me, man. I don't know. They just said something to me that the other ones didn't necessarily, but now do. But back then, those two, I think it was just the attitude and the the music, man. The band was just on fire on that album. It's what makes it so good. 
So thanks again, Andy. Always good to hear from you, my friend. Check him out on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, S-E-D-L-A-K. You can also write him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. I know Andy always likes to hear from you guys on whatever whatever it is that you may be listening to right now. And if you're loving Olivia Rodrigo half as much as he is, then you need to write him and, uh, and tell him about it, I'm sure. All right, so let's switch over to television and talk about a show that I just recently finished on HBO Max. The show aired on HBO and HBO Max, and it is Mayor of Easttown. This show got a lot of buzz over the last month, which is so rare for, like, a miniseries, uh, you know, really grown up, like, characters are... The main character is, like, a middle-aged woman, um, and this is just... There's nothing to feel good about, and there's not even really, like, big badass moments or, like, memeable moments from this show, from Mayor of Easttown, but this show just kind of caught fire, in the last month in a way that made HBO Max crash on the night that the premiere, or I'm sorry, that the finale debuted, uh, which was incredibly frustrating for myself and for Beth because we were looking forward to it all weekend. And then Sunday night comes around 10 o'clock. The app just crashes and crashes. We're trying for a half hour to get that thing to load. It was like flashbacks of when Game of Thrones was at its peak of popularity, except Mayor of Easttown was better at this point. Um, and we just couldn't wait for the finale, and apparently no one else could either. And we actually just ended up going to bed. It was like, well, fuck it. We'll just watch it tomorrow. So we watched it the next day, I think. It might even have been the day after that when we finally had time again. But, man, that was such a disappointment to have it crash. But it was a testament to how popular Mayor of Easttown was. And now I read that uh, Craig Zobel, the guy who created the show, signed a big deal with uh, HBO exclusively. So... Uh, obviously they were impressed by what they saw from this show as well. And, uh, if you watched it, you'll know why anyone who's watched it has been impressed and has been engrossed in this show. I loved every minute of mayor of East town. I thought this was prime HBO stuff. And that is definitely saying something, but this show isn't exactly the most original thing ever. I mean, it's, it's the murder mystery. It's the detective procedural. It's the show that we've seen done a million times, especially in the last decade or so, especially out of Britain. Britain kind of made this kind of TV, um, you know, a cottage industry. Really, in in Britain, there's like a new murder mystery series debuting every single week, it seems like. And they send them over here. They air on PBS or, you know, you can catch them on DVD or whatever. But Britain is just, they crank these shows out like crazy. Um, and Mayor of Easttown follows that kind of formula of the whodunit. So the the first episode, we end up getting this uh, teenage girl murdered in a you know brutal uh, killing, and her body's left naked in this public park in a town, a small town that's kind of close to Philadelphia. And the whole rest of this of the season is spent. The main, you know, part of the season, there's a lot more going on than just this, but the main part of the season is spent trying to figure out who killed her and why did they kill her and and what exactly happened on that night. And, of course, it's filled with red herrings, you know what I mean? Like, every cliche that you get from this kind of series is there. Red Herring City, like people who you definitely thought did it, who were big suspects, end up, you forgot that they were suspects by the time the final episode comes around. And it seems ridiculous that they were ever suspects to begin with. But no one's safe, and everyone's got reasons, and, 
you know, it's the classic thing. And you've got the lead detective who is a, a woman named Mayor Sheehan, who was a big hero in the town of East Town. Back when she was a teenager, she was like the star player on the girls' high school basketball team that won a state championship. And it's still to this day, like 30 years later, the greatest thing that ever happened in the town. So everyone in the town, like, knows Mayor. And she's friends with most of them. Not all of them, though, because she has a very abrasive personality. But Kate Winslet plays this part. And, of course, she's like the busted down, you know, she's a single mom to older kids. She's also raising her grandson um, for, you know, reasons that you find out that are just just awful. And it, she's, you know, got this home life that is, is just falling apart at the seams. So, again, that's kind of a, a cliche, right? The only thing that this show's missing, Mare is not like an alcoholic. So I'll give him that. So she doesn't have any addiction issues, uh, which was a good thing. I think that uh, veer, it kept it away from being a total kind of just like, oh, I've seen this a million times before. But Mayor of Easttown separates itself in a couple ways. Number one is with the acting. It, this is like A-list caliber stars first off in Kate Winslet. I mean, she's the kind of person that if you get her on a TV show, it's a big deal because she's one of the best actors of her generation, you know, possibly of all time, as far as screen actors go, she's right up there. I mean, she's as, as good as it gets. When have you ever seen Kate Winslet in something and not felt that she gave a great performance? She always does. Doesn't matter what type of character it is. Doesn't matter what type of film it is. She does it all. And in Mayor of Easttown, she gets to do it all. She gives you absolutely devastating uh, lows in this show and also gives you some genuine laughs uh, also, and opens up some real humanity in this show and makes Mayor into a three-dimensional character, which is hard to do in the span of however many episodes this was. Seven episodes, I think, was the total run. This is a miniseries, by the way, uh, in case you're wondering. So it's it's not going to take up a lot of your time, but I, I guarantee you, you are going to enjoy every minute of it if you like murder mysteries and if you have a stomach for dark storytelling. And, I, and when I say dark, I mean relentlessly grim. This show is is grim with a capital G. Uh, it, it's just, it's the whole town. East Town, the, one thing that's kind of simmering under the surface during Mayor of East Town is just the decay that has happened in small towns across America because East Town is a small town. It's everyone knows each other. It's one of the funny things about the show because you get a character who's played by Evan Peters, which it was, by the way, it was fun to see Evan Peters play a part that's not a complete weirdo. You know what I mean? Like we've spent so much time watching Evan Peters play these like ridiculously over the top weirdo nut jobs on American Horror Story. So to see him play like a nice guy, a funny guy uh, who just wants to break the ice so bad and he's awkward and everything else, that was really refreshing. I think it was I think he enjoyed it quite a bit. It seemed like uh, playing this part. He he plays a young detective who comes from a different you know area, who comes from a different place in Pennsylvania to help uh, Mayor on the case of this girl's murder. Uh, and also to help find a missing girl that Mayor's been working on as another case. So uh, he's he's kind of looked at as like he's a hot shot, but you know you end up peeling the layers off of his story as well, and and it gets sad just like with everyone else. So he plays you know just this this character that you can't help but like as soon as he comes in. 
but he acts kind of as a uh, he he shows you how ridiculous it is that how tight this community is because he comes in as like the only outsider no one knows him and he's just amazed that everyone knows Mayor. Mayor knows everybody. She knows who they are. She knows everyone's business. She knows everyone's history. Like, she is the town of East Town. She is, like, the mayor of East Town. So if you heard the title and you're thinking, it's Mayor of East Town. No, it's not. It's Mayor. M-A-R-E is her name. Marianne. Uh, but mayor of East town might as well have been what it was called because she is essentially the mayor. She like, she knows everybody and everybody knows her. But like I was saying, this show is relentlessly grim. Everyone in the show. And I mean, everyone. And there are a lot of characters. This is not a small cast show. This is a big sprawling cast. We feel like we really get to know the citizens of East town in this case. And everyone's got a quirk about them that makes them memorable. Whether it's this, you know, rookie police officer who's afraid of blood who ends up not even being a very big character, but you remember him because he's afraid of blood and it gives him a really memorable thing to his character and things like that really help uh, in a show where you've got this many characters in this short of a time, but everyone in the show without exception has had terrible things happen in their family or in their own life, usually resulting in death, whether it's by drugs, suicide, a crime, an accident, death is all over Mayor of Easttown. It's in every nook and cranny. It seems to be hiding in every shadow of the town of Easttown. Death is there somewhere. And this show is just bleak with a capital B. So if you can handle that, I think you are going to find some phenomenal television if you give this show a watch. It was phenomenal all the way through. They even got the ending right, which... That is so hard to do with these kind of murder mysteries to make it like a satisfying ending. Uh, but they did it. And you, I mean, f tough choices. The the characters are put in very bad situations all throughout this show. And, you know, loyalties are tested and loyalties to community, loyalties to friends, loyalties to family, loyalties to your badge when it's in the case of mayor uh, and the people who you were supposed to be serving in your in your town. Um, and who do you put above that, or if anyone? So there's a lot of stuff going on in this show. I thought it was so well written, but the acting is just phenomenal. Again, Kate Winslet leads it off. She's got to win an Emmy for this performance. I don't see how there's any way she doesn't. Jean Smart as her mother. When is, when is Jean Smart not great in something? Again, phenomenal actor. Uh, man, I remember her just blowing me away in Fargo a couple seasons ago on that show. Just just what a hard ass in Fargo she was. And I'm so glad to be seeing her all over the place now. She just seems to be in a project every couple months. You see Jean Smart popping up. So she's really having this career renaissance years after she uh, was, you know, one of the main players on Designing Women back in the day. And Angry Rice, who I am so glad to be seeing uh, again on screen, she plays... Uh, she plays Mare's daughter, Shaban, who is just like the, the kid that everyone wishes they could have. I mean, Shaban was such a, uh, such a, a, a light, brought such a light to this show, which again is just such a bleak series. But Shaban was like the, the flashlight that we all needed to see in the darkness. She was just who we want to see. Every time she's in a scene, I'm like, oh, just give me more Shaban because she just makes everything feel bearable. Uh, wow, there's so much darkness happening. And it's a lot of that is because of Angry Rice's performance and her phenomenal haircut, which I thought was great. Her style's awesome, too. But uh, 
if you, I think years ago on this show, I know I wrote a review years ago professionally of the movie The Nice Guys. Um, and Angry Rice was in that. She was just a young girl at that point. She's still pretty young now, but she was a, a girl in that movie. And she was so funny in that movie. It, and I just was like, this girl is going to be all over the place because she's so good. Her timing was flawless. She just has this kind of life uh, in her face that just makes her magnetic. And she stole the movie from Ryan Gosling and from from Russell Crowe. Uh, back in the back in that movie, the Nice Guys, uh, but she was fantastic here again, standing up with heavyweights, Kate Winslet, Gene Smart. She's in plenty of scenes with them, and she holds her own every single time. And I was just blown away by her performance. So there's going to be a lot of Emmys going around, I think, when Mayor of Easttown is up uh, later on this year. But I really want to put the spotlight for a second on Julianne Nicholson because to me. She was the real surprise here because I already knew Kate Winslet. I already knew Gene Smart. Smart. I already knew Angry Rice. I already knew Guy Pierce, who's also in it as well. But I did not really know Julianne Nicholson, who is a veteran performer. You might know her from uh, uh, Law & Order. But anyway, she plays, she plays Lori, who is Mayor's best friend. And she was one of her teammates on the high school basketball team back in the day, and they've remained tight ever, you know, all through the years. And Julianne Nicholson just steals the show to me in one of the best performances I can, best breakout performances I can remember somebody having uh, in recent years, especially from an actor of that age. So I just thought she was great. She's standing up with these heavyweight Titan actors and you can't look away from her whenever she's on screen. I thought everything she did just had weight to it. And it all just felt like it came from a real place. I think she dug deep for this and it had to be a, it had to be a, a painstaking role to take on for her because the things her character goes through are tough. Uh, you know, just, just very, very tough. And when you see her, the things she goes through in the show, she just gives it such weight uh, and it all feels so real. So I think this, this performance is going to be a, a career maker, a career booster, at least not like she didn't have a career, but this is going to be one of those that really puts her on the map for a lot of people. So Julianne Nicholson, uh, you will definitely ex be expecting to see her around a lot after Mayor of Easttown goes away. So, I mean, unlike some other, you know, the the myriad, take your pick, the many other uh, murder mystery shows that have come and gone over the years, I think Mayor of Easttown is going to stand the test of time because it's about more than the murder. The murder is important, but there's also a missing persons case going on that you're not sure if that's going to result in a death or not. And there's also so much character building happening in such a short period of time. But also the town of Easttown becomes uh, so well fleshed out in this show and I, you feel like you just know that community and it's not necessarily somewhere that you want to spend any time like when the show was over I felt like I knew everybody but I'm like I'm good I don't really want to go back to Easttown I don't think I want to hang out there because uh, it's a rough tough place and it's not a happy place like I said everyone's life has just been touched by awful awful things and there are moments of respite in this show but they are few and and far between and they are earned uh, which, again, is a, a credit to great writing and uh, and great editing and great directing and just fantastic acting. Some of the best acting you're going to see on TV came in Mayor of Easttown. I can't say enough good about this show. Everything you've heard is true, and uh, it crashed the app for a reason. So it's rare when popularity and greatness come together like this, but 
in Mayor of Easttown, they definitely did. So stop whatever you're doing and, and, and give it a watch. Just uh, put it on your list and give it a watch. If you have any interest in murder mysteries, if you have any interest in kitchen sink realism, character studies, um, if you're just a fan of Kate Winslet, watch Mayor of Easttown because it's, uh, it's about seven hours or so of, of your life that you're not going to regret spending in front of the TV. All, all, all episodes of Mayor of Easttown are now streaming on HBO Max, and hopefully the app won't crash for you since uh, they've already been there for, for some time at this point. Did you tell your family yet? I have to. Uh, I mean, I guess you could just pretend to go to work every day. Chief's making me see some grief therapist as a part of my suspension. Well, I know it's not what you want, Mayor, but it might be a good thing to step away. I'm Katie Bailey, Aaron. Your family's worried about you. You're not talking anymore. You never talk about it. Yeah, my son killed himself, Floor. I'm sorry if I'm not the life of the fucking party. Well, first of all, you were never the life of the party. You're pushing everyone away. Including you? No, I won't let you. I loved it. I think you can expect that show to sweep the limited series categories at uh, the Emmys this year when they come around. All right, let's go back to movies. I always like to give you some movies streaming on uh, the big streaming platforms. I'm going to do that in just a second, but first I want to tell you about the best thing I watched this month, which was probably Mayor of Easttown, but I like to I like to highlight a movie for this segment. So what I'm going to give you is 2001's The Pledge, directed by Sean Penn and starring Jack Nicholson. I somehow had never seen this movie. I'm a huge Nicholson nut. Um, Penn, I'm so-so on. He's not in the movie, though. Uh, but this, again, was directed by him. But I'm, I love Jack Nicholson. I mean, he can almost do no wrong in my book. And I somehow had missed this one. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm big into... I like police movies a lot, too. And this is one of those gritty kind of uh, detective movies. What The Pledge is about is it's about a... a, a it's about an old grizzled veteran investigator who has retired, uh, but he's become kind of obsessed with a case that he promised to solve when he was still on the force. So he's he's now, you know, in his older age and and he's he's in retirement, but he's still working this case because he thinks he's he's finally caught a whiff of of what happened. And it involves, again, the slaying of a of a child, a young child this time. And he made like a uh, he made a, a pledge, an oath to the the woman's uh, to the girl's mom uh, that he would solve the case regardless of what happened. So this is a really intense movie, and and Nicholson gives a brilliant performance, one of the best of his career. I was just blown away from start to finish. Not a bad note, fantastic because you know late career Nicholson. You know, sometimes it can just be way too over the top or something. But in this movie, it's all reined in and it's all just the his age works perfectly for him here. Um, and it's just a, it was a great movie. I thought the ending was tremendous. I think the, the ending is one of those that could let you down potentially. But if it lets you down, I think you're you're looking for the wrong kind of ending here. 
I thought it was was perfect. I thought it was flawless and and said a lot more about you know this character and about obsession than it needed to about the crime itself. And 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 there's no heroes in this movie, which I thought was great. So cop movies usually you know they they can't help but slurp on the police and and make them into you know, these over-the-top heroic figures, but the pledge, there's none of that. No hero worship in this movie. It is, uh, it's grim, and it's it's sad, actually, when it all comes down, when the credits end. But uh, you're in for a treat if you haven't seen this. So the pledge from 2001 is the best thing I watched this month. I also rewatched uh, 2008's Let the Right One In, which is one of my all-time favorite horror movies, my very favorite vampire movie. You should check that one out, too, if you have neglected it all these years. All right, let's get to some movie streaming now. On Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. I like to give you something light and something dark to add to your queue. Let's start on Netflix. First off, Something Light from 1998, The Coen Brothers' masterpiece, The Big Lebowski. You've probably heard everything about it at this point. It's one of the the biggest cult movies ever. A lot of douchey guys like to talk about their love of the Big Lebowski, but just ignore those people because what it really is is such a great, twisty-turny, noirish, funny detective movie, uh, private eye movie, uh, featuring you know, a couple of the funniest performances you are ever going to see, including the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is just brilliant, uh, Jeff Bridges, of course, as the dude, which is one of the all-time great characters in American cinema history, and last but not least, John Goodman as Walter Sobchak. And, I, you know, I can't leave out uh, Donnie, Steve Buscemi as well. It's just a great cast, endlessly quotable, very funny movie, and a twisty, turny story that pays an homage to all the kind of great old detective movies, but just puts a very weird Coen Brothers bent on them. There's, there's no movie like The Big Lebowski, really. So that's, that's to me, why it lives on forever. You got to check it out. It's it's now streaming on Netflix or watch it for the hundredth time if you want, but it's streaming there in high definition. Also on Netflix, something dark, very dark. I mean, God, this is pitch black. 1974's Chinatown. I was talking about Nicholson. I, I think I've said it before on this show. If somebody had a gun to my head asked me to name the greatest movie ever made, I think I would say Chinatown. I think it's that good. It's that's going to sound like hyperbole, but I don't think there's a better movie that's ever been made. Everything about it is flawless. The script is flawless. The music is as good as any music you're ever going to hear. The acting's pitch perfect. The the cinematography's beautiful. The whole style of the movie fantastic. It's totally original but also pays tribute again to it's like the great neo-noir. It, it, it pays tribute to all those great Bogart movies from back in the day, but I think it outdoes them all. I just think uh, it, it's got a way more of an edge to it, and it is just grim, and it's got a brilliant ending as well. Chinatown is as good as filmmaking gets, if you ask me. Roman Polanski's an asshole, but man, this movie is just as good as anything that's ever been made, so check it out now on Netflix. Best movie ever made, you ask me. Prime Video, uh, something light for you from 1996. Kingpin. Uh, it's very light, very stupid. Man, the late 90s, what was up with all the bowling movies that were coming out? Two really good ones. This one was from uh, the Fairley Brothers, uh, who did Dumb and Dumber, of course. I think this was their follow-up to Dumb and Dumber. And this one's edgier. It's it's R-rated. Um, Woody Harrelson stars in it alongside Randy Quaid. It's just a bizarre 
movie. Hard to even describe, honestly, but I, I, I really bring it up to you because Bill Murray gives one of his most underrated performances. He steals the entire movie as the villain in Kingpin, and he is a nasty son of a bitch in this movie. He is a villain from all the way through. Just a nasty bastard. Uh, but he's so funny in it. So uh, Kingpin's great. One of my favorite sports movies. It's streaming now on Prime Video. Uh, something dark for you on Prime Video. Let's go with 2002's Minority Report. This is one of the Steven Spielberg uh, modern masterpieces. Spielberg and, and Tom Cruise did some really good work together there in the 2000s. I like their War of the Worlds remake as well, but Minority Report is the is the real masterpiece that they did together in that era. This is just uh, a phenomenal sci-fi action movie. Colin Farrell's really good in it as well. The story is is you know mind-bending. It's one of those that takes a couple watches to really get the most out of it, but um, it's just, the special effects are good. The, the story's really memorable um, and unique, and it's just a, a cool movie, and, and Cruz does a, a fantastic job in it. It's a, it's a neat image of the future and the future of crime fighting and the future of policing, um, but also, of course, the dangers that can go with that as well. So it's, it's a really good movie. Minority Report from 2002. If you missed that one, check it out now in beautiful high def on Prime Video. On Hulu now, something light for you. I was talking about it before, The Nice Guys. I figured I'd, I'd bring it up because I saw it was streaming on Hulu. So this was the one that's, that stars uh, Angry Rice, or actually she ends up, she's not starring, she's a supporting player in it, but uh, she was the girl who played Shabon in Mayor of Easttown. So if you want to see what I was talking about when I saw The Nice Guys in theaters back what, five years ago now, and I was just left the theater. All I could think about was this girl because she was so funny and good in it. And I couldn't wait to see what she would do next. So uh, it also stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. It's kind of a uh, period movie set. And I think it was the 70s. And it's, you know, a buddy cop movie. And, and they are, they're funny watching them play against each other. Russell Crowe especially is good in it. Um, and, you know, just the movie's got a lot of attitude and it's it's very funny. As well, so check out the Nice Guys from 2016 right now on Hulu. It'll it's a fun watch for you. Crack some beers and and check it out. Another one that's dark on Hulu, but also kind of a fun watch. 1987's Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you missed Predator, I mean, this is essential Schwarzenegger. This is you know, do it now, kill me, kill me now. Come on, what are you waiting for? Come on, kill me, I'm here. Come on, do it now, kill me. This is this is as classic as it gets with with Schwarzenegger and and there's a reason when you check it out I mean he is just shredded in this movie and it's got just a a great cast of big tough guy actors uh, filling out the ranks so uh, check it out I mean you drop Arnold into the jungle with this apex predator who can make itself invisible and also you know. Uh, use weapons and stuff like that and you're just asking for a brilliant piece of, of filmmaking the sequel actually underrated sequel Predator 2 where the Predator goes to the city of all places and I think Danny yeah Danny Glover was the star of the Predator, of Predator 2 the sequel is also on Hulu so I think after you watch Predator you should check out the sequel because it's severely underrated it's a really really good sequel for what it is. I mean, is it as good as the first one? No, but it's it's really good still. All right, let's move over to HBO Max now. Uh, finally, something light for you streaming over there. The Decline of Western Civilization from 1981. One of my favorite documentaries 
ever made. Uh, Penelope Spheris behind the camera for this one. It is uh, as iconic a music film as you'll ever see. I'm not sure if Andy's ever seen The Decline of Western Civilization, but if not, you've got to check it out. But it's, uh, it's a classic. I mean, this is the movie that dove deep into the Los Angeles punk rock scene in the late 1970s, which was just such a dangerous place to be. I mean, you had performers just like killing themselves on stage, literally, for the entertainment of audiences and, you know, making no money and just being endlessly high and drunk and uh, I mean, this is true rock and roll uh, at its kind of like lowest level, and it's just nastiest, sleaziest level is explored in great detail by Penelope Spheris uh, in The Decline of Western Civilization from 1981. It's streaming now for you on HBO Max. The whole trilogy is not on HBO Max, I don't think. I think just the first one is. But if you if you get a chance... And again, your library might have all three of them. Check out the whole trilogy because they're all really good. The second one is almost like comedic. It goes into hair metal. And the the second one came out like 10 years later in 1988 and came out way later. It's about the L.A. metal scene and talks about the hair metal bands and the you know rise of MTV and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just all about the the decadence and the excess that would come along with being a popular rock group. And then the third one is so much, it's so grim and sad, really. That that one came out in 98, and it's really about homeless teenagers who are in punk bands and stuff like that. Again, like the total opposite of who is explored in part two. These kids aren't famous. They're not even seeking fame. They just like making music, doing drugs and shit like that. And their lives are just awful. But they play music, and they love it, and that's where they find their... Uh, I mean, that, that's where they find their joy in life. So it's a uh, it's really powerful movie. I like the third one a lot. It doesn't get talked about as much, but the whole trilogy is great. It's Penelope Spheris' best work for sure. All right, uh, HBO Max, something dark for you. Let's go to 2020's Doctor Sleep. I raved about this one, and I put it on my favorite movies of the year when I did that list uh, for 2020. I said it was one of my one of my very favorites. And uh, there was a uh, there's a reason for that. This is this is how you do a, a, an effective sequel. And is it as good as as Kubrick's The Shining? I mean, it's almost like apples to oranges. I don't, I don't even think that they're necessarily that comparable. But there are a lot of things here that make The Shining even better. And I think that's the mark of a good sequel as well. And Ewan McGregor gives a really deep performance as the grown-up Danny Torrance in Dr. Sleep. I was really blown away by this one. It's a long movie, but I kind of even wanted it to be longer. I thought there was enough story here for something else. So this is this is one of the better Stephen King adaptations I've come across in years. Uh, and it is now streaming. And it's a, it's a really good-looking movie, too. It's one of those that I went and bought, out on, bought on Blu-ray uh, like right away because it just is a really good-looking movie. And I think... Uh, you'll figure that out for yourself when you check it out on HBO Max, where it is now streaming. So check all those out and, and get back to me. Tell me what you thought of them. Hit me up at theclintdavis at gmail.com because that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Always good hanging out with you, my friend. Thank you for, for sticking with us, for checking out this show over all these years. and Or maybe you're just, fig- you're just discovering it. Either way, thank you for joining us and Uh, Please tell your friends about the show. Please spread the word. We'll talk to you in another month. Until then, stream on.
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.